I'm Dr. Sam Hazardame, founder of MedWorld, um, as you should know by now, because this is my podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Carmen Basu, founder of Milk and Honey Pediatrics. Carmen, Carmen is a pediatrician and disillusioned with her ability to innovate in the public health system, has you know, struck out and pioneered a new way of approaching life in the first 1,000 days. Um, it's a really interesting approach, and if you think about how important those first thousand days are, um, it, it's a really meaningful work. She's passionate about addressing inequalities in our health system, and is actually, you know, taking massive action to address some of those inequalities in, in, in the ways that she can. So. Welcome, Carmen. It's really great to be here and be having this conversation. Oh, yeah, Morena, Sam. I, I am absolutely thrilled to be on your podcast. Um, I agreed to this podcast a while ago, as you know, and um, I then listened to a lot of your podcasts and um, feel quite intimidated by <laughs> the line of guests that you've had in the lead up to the show. And um, I really wanted to tell Toko you actually, because you raise up a lot of women in medicine, um, a lot of women in innovators and activists, and a lot of women of color as well. And I think that is important. You know, that for me motivates me to want to do this podcast, because uh, I can see that you um, have a different lens as well when it comes to looking at the medical world. I really appreciate that. Um, I... You know, I, I think that, you know, part of the, the value of, of this, of talking with, with interesting doctors doing amazing things is, is to get those um, different perspectives because um, we all do see the world through our own lens. And, and, and I just find, you know, these conversations, um, for me personally, just help to kind of, I guess, expand that lens, see things through different eyes. Um, and, and I really truly believe that, you know, a lot of, I, th I think a lot of the challenges we face in medicine um, or a lot of the biases, I really truly believe like in, in the goodness of doctors. Um, I, and, and I think that so, so, you know, I think almost everyone who goes into medicine goes in for the right reasons and they're good people um, wanting to do meaningful work. And so I think that, and, and this is what I found in myself, those biases that we all come from, you know, for how, whatever reason, you know, upbringing, our parents our schooling whatever it is I think most of those are really just very they're subconscious and so for me I think one of the most important ways I guess for addressing those biases like personally is sometimes just actually seeing that they're there and shining the light and if you shine the light on them um, you can kind of dissolve them instantly um, and so that's why I love you know having these and and, and to, to your point yes we've had some you know there's some amazing people on here and you you are absolutely um, one of those people, and you do, you know, so you 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 deserve your spot on here. Love love the work you're doing. Oh, thank you. I'm experiencing heavy dose of imposter syndrome at the moment, but I will go with this. <laughs> Look, I, I think imposter syndrome. It's an interesting one as well in doctors, isn't it? I think we I, I don't I think we all experience it at times because you know when you're at school, for example we're all like the top of our class. Um, that's just kind of what you need to be to get into med school. Then you get into med school and everyone's like a Rhodes Scholar and a this and a that. And like, it's very quick, you very quickly, you, you feel um, you're not the top of the top of the heap anymore. You're just one, one of many. So uh, 
I think it's a, it's a pretty common thing in medicine. But let's, rather that we won't, you know, I, I guess rather than starting with what you're doing with milk and honey, which I think is really, really important, we'll get to that, and, and you know, innovation and things, I'm, I'm interested to know, firstly, why you chose to be a doctor. Um, you know, why did you choose to get into this field? Um, and, and has anything surprised yeah. I mean, I've been reflecting about this a lot over the years, why I went into medicine. And I have to say, I think the reason I went into medicine is probably a centuries old, pretty unoriginal reason. Um, have you have you have you ever been to New York? Have you ever seen the medical? Yeah. And I've, I've been to New York and I, I don't know much about the medical school there, but I have passed the doors of the medical school um which I think is somewhere in Manhattan and it's got this um sorry I know I've gone off on a tangent I will come back to you um but there are these sort of Hogwarts looking doors with this really um ancient Latin inscription above it um and it caught my eye because it had the word disco on it and um, I didn't think that disco was a Latin term so I out of curiosity I went and looked it up and um, that fancy Latin inscription above the medical school doors uh, reads, um, roughly translated, something like, no stranger to troubles myself, I'm learning to help others in distress. And I think that's why I went into medicine, you know, it's that concept of a wounded healer. And I think you probably have come across lots of people in medicine where their journey into medicine has been because they've experienced illness or been exposed to illness or traumas themselves. And you walk through the path of medicine trying to make sense of what happened to you. And so that was, that's very much me. Um, I was uh, an only child of immigrant parents. Both my parents were um, extremely unwell when I was um, a child and um, and entered into the medical system many times um, and often were misdiagnosed and then um, when I was age nine my father died and then shortly afterwards my mother nearly died and I think just that exposure to all the doctors and nurses um, at that time seeing how much power they held and their ability to really shapeshift your life based on their connection with you and your family and what they saw and what they observed that really sort of stayed with me I think um and then yeah just sort of slowly led me into into wanting to become a doctor yeah brilliant I mean I think you're right and so, so many people um, you know, ultimately it comes down to wanting to help people. And, and, and you know, I know people definitely, um, you know, go, go into medicine, you know, with those ideals. Um, and you, why, we, there's, there's easier ways to make a living if you didn't. But, but, but often those ideals get challenged, don't they? And, and you know, so, so is anything like what have you come across that's kind of challenged, you know, the reasons you went in and surprised you about medicine? You know, obviously seeing from the perspective, but as a, as a small child, you know, seeing the power and the influence of these doctors, like what, what, what's your experience been like in comparison to that? I mean, that's a tricky question. I, I think, 
I think probably personally the thing that surprised me the most is, um, and I'm sure you've come across this, is when you tell people that you're a doctor or that you were in or that you've studied medicine, one of the common reactions is, um, oh my God, you must be so clever. You must be so clever. And then when I went to university and, you know, that whole concept of being academic got really, really embedded in because I went to a very old fashioned traditional British university. And, and then the people coming in, as you said, they're all the best of the best of their year. And this kind of gets hotbedded into, into the culture of medicine of you must be really clever. You must be really academic to be the best doctor. You must have the biggest brain. And, you know, and I really believed that for the first five, six years of doing my medical degree. And I felt um, very early on like I wasn't achieving the right standard because I wasn't the top 10% of my year. You know, I was probably the, in the bottom 10%. And, you know, and, and I really scraped through my finals. And I remember that summer just before I was about to start work as a junior doctor in the UK they call it your PRHO year your pre-registrational house year and um and I remember that summer and I was really subdued I'm not a subdued person at all um and really withdrawn and all all my friends were off having fancy electives in in, in tropical countries and and I, I didn't even feel like I deserved to go on an elective because um I was so worried about how I was going to perform and then that first year of being a doctor just transformed my thinking because as soon as I actually started, I realized that actually all I needed to do was be really good at communicating, be really part of a team, be a team player and, and use a lot of common sense. And I was like a glorified secretary a lot of the time. And I was like manager. It was people managing. It was, you know, and, and if somebody didn't tell me what to do, I, I had to be proactive and say, well, do you want me to chase those bloods? Or do you want such and such person to chase those bloods? And, and I suddenly realized I didn't need this big academic brain. Which, you know, you're fostered in that culture of you need to be this sort of big egghead and really, really hyper-focused and hyper-intense. And really, you don't. You, you need to be somebody that can relate, that can connect, that can organize systems, that can look at the big picture, know what details are important and what details aren't. And actually, then I suddenly realized that all that time that I thought I'd wasted at medical school doing all these extracurricular activities um, and overloading myself with all of those, suddenly that all came to the fore because medicine isn't about being highly intelligent and intellectual. That's very niche. You can, you can do that if you want to. Yeah, so I think that's the biggest surprise, that actually there are lots of people out there that could do medicine that we don't actually appeal to. Um, we kind of really make people focus in on the academia to get into medical school, but how important is it really at the end? I, you know, I don't know. I question that now. No, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean, even since I did, med, you know, well, 20 years ago, but uh, it's got harder and harder to get in. Like it's, you know, it, it's it's so extreme. I mean, the the extreme end of academia now to get into medicine. Yes, yeah, and why? Why? I I just recently tried to help two um, really promising medical. Um, well, I thought medical students get into medical school. Both of them get in, and and um, and they were they were 
be such amazing doctors and had such great life skills and life experience. And I was really, really disappointed to see that it was the, the focus was still on academia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's a whole other discussion, I guess, isn't it? But I think it's really. I mean, it's a really good observation because. And it's something that I, you know, I've been interested in doctor well-being and burnout for for a long time, and launch into some research around, you know, what what could actually move the needle. And one of the things that you know we're we're, we're releasing through the Med World as a professional network is actually around the publishing and sharing of all these great ideas, all these things that aren't covered by the medicine part, the clinical papers part. Because when we kind of look into what a doctor does on a daily basis, way less than half is covered by clinical papers. You know, the, you know what, what makes a great doctor, it is that part, but it's also it's the leadership and the management and the well-being and the communication and how they run their private practice and all of that stuff. And, you know, I think, you know, part of you know having these conversations is sharing good ideas because you know I, I truly believe that the you know the, the challenges we face in our in medicine are all very solvable challenges if we were to actually tap into the collective kind of intelligence of, of our peers and so I think that's a it's a really interesting observation so you know I mean really interesting way you kind of I guess what, how you got in what was surprised you about medicine and obviously what you've lent into from a skill set perspective and I guess so so bringing us to you know now how, how is it that you ended up deciding to go into private practice and 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 set up uh, milk and honey pediatrics and tell us a bit about what that is you know what's different about it yeah so um I think you know, Milk and Honey Pediatrics is really born out of a massive amount of disillusionment with the medical system. And then in myself, I'd come to a standstill, a forced standstill and point of reflection because I ended up having a, a surprise baby. So I was at this point in my career where I was supposed to get on the treadmill and become a consultant and go into the hospital and be offered a job there and... Um, and I, I just had reached a point where I just felt like I couldn't collude with the imperfections that are in these big health institutions anymore. And I wanted um, to create something new and unique. And I wasn't sure what that would look like or what that would be. Um, and then along came Abby. Uh, basket who is um, my co-founder for milk and honey pediatrics and she was really the catalyst um, for then forming this concept of this new and unique clinic and I remember sitting with her um, when my baby was four months old breastfeeding in a cafe and both of us downloading a sort of our 10 years worth of frustration at working within the medical system and and what we would change about it and what we ended up doing was um focusing on the first 1000 days of life um which is um when we look at all the medical literature i mean you talked a lot about you know <clears throat> the the research that's out there that can be helpful um 
you know, the first 1,000 days is a concept that's been around now for about 10 years, led by, um, you know, really amazing doctors like Nadine Burke-Harris, who have identified that if there is any trauma or um, any major life events that occur to you in the first 1,000 days of life, and now possibly even in your antenatal period, that has a huge impact, a huge health impact on you later on in life not just that it it has a huge health impact on you in the there and the the now but it also reverberates decades later Um, and yet our funding structures in health our funding structures in education in this country our funding structures in the policies around um, parental leave and things like that do not support the first 1000 days very well Um, and you know Abby knows this very, very well. She's spent 10 years trying to set up something very simple like a mother and baby clinic uh, within a hospital. And it's just come across obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And so in the end, we have moved out of public the public health system. Because as you said at the beginning of your podcast, you can't innovate in a huge, gigantic structure that has, um, oh, you know, decades of bureaucracy and politics behind it. What you need is a fresh start um, to release the creativity. And so what we did is we created, um, you know, we don't have government funding, so it has to be a private clinic. Um, But we were very clear from the beginning that we wanted to create um, structures that were welcoming to communities that are normally considered um, marginalised, particularly in the healthcare setting, or who are normally not well served by big health institutions. Um, and by doing that, so our first steps were by engaging a fantastic company called Engaging Well, who are a Māori-based company run by Hone um, and he talked to us about embedding Māori principles right from the off and creating a culture and a space that welcomed those that don't normally feel welcome in a hospital. Um, and then creating um, not just the, the concepts within our healthcare, but then looking at how we can redistribute the equity that we have. So... Um, So that could be time, resources, funding, um, so that if you cannot access private medicine, um, we can still open our doors to you. And that isn't a charitable act. That is a simple social initiative where we redistribute equity. Um, And it's just trying to create the structures from the ground up that allow us to be able to just... um, I don't know, just be a different type of medical institution and play with that concept and that idea. So, so that um, the sort of redistribution, is, is that essentially um, the patients who can afford it are to an extent funding the patients who can't? To a certain extent. Um, so we do redistribute some of our profit that we make into what we call, we call it our honeypot. So um, we have like a separate account, which is our social initiative. And um, some of our profit goes into that. So if you come and visit us and your private insurance company pays for your appointment, we'll put some of that money from that appointment into the honeypot. We will also later on be holding bigger fundraisers and hoping to go into partnership with businesses and um, 
bigger institutions who can donate into the honeypot so that um, if you come into our clinic, nobody knows. Did you pay for your appointment? Did your insurance company pay for your appointment? Does the honeypot pay for your appointment? Um, so that's one thing that we can do is just um, try and fund access. The other thing we can do is... Um, Say, for example, you can afford our care, but you are from a marginalised group. You're Māori, you're Pacifica, you're from the Rainbow community. Um, we would, you fill out a registration form that helps us identify you. And as such, we try and give you then more time, more follow-up. We recognise that, you know, if you've been in the health system, um, you have, even though you've you're middle class or you're well off, you still uh, can be the victim of inequities within that system. And so as part of being in a health structure, we want to redistribute that inequity that you've previously experienced and give you more. Um, and we know we should be doing this. You know, we have got decades and decades of research to say that if you are Māori or you're Pacifica or if you're Rainbow and you enter into the hospital, you are your condition is not identified as quickly, you're not prioritised in terms of operating lists, in terms of clinic lists. So there are lots of practical things we can do to acknowledge that and say, okay, well, you haven't been prioritised in the past, let us prioritise you, we'll see you quicker, for example. Um, so <clears throat> there are those kind of things that you can do. And then the other way we can redistribute equity is look at our workforce and, um, and raise up those that are in those communities that can come in and work for us. Um, because, you know, it's the old adage, if you see it, you can be it. So if we can create a workforce that looks different from the traditional ideology, you know, the, the traditional views that we have of, of medicine, which tends to be a sort of a panel of old white men um but, you know if we could change that up a little bit and say look you can enter our clinic and you know the person at the desk might you know be from a completely different culture a completely different background to what you're used to but they can do this job too then that kind of helps show people a little microcosm of what medical the medical world could be um and it's just a little experiment just to show people look, we can do this too it can be different i guess thinking you know, to me it sounds like you know sort of the principles of treaty of waitangi is you know we're looking for a quality of outcome not a quality of input and and i think that's something you know that, that's something for me certainly over my life you know when you're a, when you're a young white male it's very easy you know it's very easy to think oh we're you know we've all got the same start um you know it's but but as you grow up particularly in medicine if you keep your eyes open you very quickly realise we didn't all get the same start. We didn't all get the same opportunities. And as you say, in medicine, um, we aren't giving people the same opportunities, the same, I guess, opportunities to be listened to, opportunities to actually engage with the health system and do it in a way that, you know, they're, they're comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I mean, we and we do need more people like you, Sam. You know, we need people who are allies who use their power for good, um, because it can't always be the people in the marginalised groups pushing for change. It has to be. We have to ally with people who have the power, who sit with the power, and we rely on people like you to have your eyes open and and raise people up. So, you know, this is this is no small thing that you're doing at all. 
and Medworld, if that's embedded in Medworld, that's not a small thing. That's a would be a huge cultural shift. Uh, needs to happen. It, it is one of the things that I, I really feel strongly about through Medworld is sort of is democratizing good ideas, um, because medicine is very hierarchical, um, and, and and you know you know exactly where you are on the hierarchy. Um, and, we're, you know, my belief is that, you know, and there's a reason for that in terms of some things like clinical expertise. And, you know, we all know that the more whatever prostate um, you've removed, the better you are at it. But it's not the same for all ideas. You know what I mean? And, and so I think that, you know, I really think I believe in the democratization, you know, age, um, seniority, um, sex, sexual orientation, race, whatever. Um, that the, there is no filter that, that can tell you what's going to be a good idea or not. And I really believe in that ability to share good ideas. I think medicine improves if we, if we can get everyone, you know, sharing what's working, what's great for them. Absolutely. And it's, it's points of connection, isn't it? It's just trying to connect each other in different ways. And that's what needs to happen. Yeah. Ab absolutely. And, and to your point as well, Alex, the last person I was speaking to on this was Dr. Danielle Jones, um, who goes by name Mama Dr. Jones. She's got like over two two million followers on, on, on social media um and, and i asked her about the same thing around advocacy and and you know what what you know who needs to be advocated for and and she said the exact same thing it's it's marginalized people um and 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 i think that's to me that's a as you say like it's everyone's job in medicine to advocate for the ability to practice good medicine and, and, and I think that, uh, and, and therefore, if there are marginalized groups who are not receiving um, medicine at the level that, you know, whatever you believe, we're here to be, you know, we're here to practice medicine and be good doctors. And if there's a reason that we can't or that they're not receiving it, then I think it's everyone's job to advocate for change. I think this comes back to your point of um, when you were talking about how, like, 50% of what we do isn't published or we're not we're we, you know we're not educated on it that's the art of medicine and and you know and i think there's so much heavy focus on the science of medicine and evidence basis and that's all well and good but you can't neglect the art of medicine which is how you connect with people how people experience you you have to listen to the people that you're treating and 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 be reciprocal you can't just be sort of as you said hierarchical and patriarchal tell people what to do and say i know best because i've read these scientific papers you don't always if you don't mix it with the art mm. I, I think part of that the art of medicine I, I mean as to why can it not be covered by clinical papers i have thought about this a bit and you know clinical papers need to be statistically significant you know you need you need large sample sizes but when it comes down to things like leadership and management and communication and things like that what works for individuals is based on the individual. And so we're never going to get statistically significant um, clinical, you know, double-blind randomized controlled trials around how, you know, I need to, how I should communicate best, because how I'll communicate best is going to be different from you. And, and for, for, for myriad reasons in our background and our experience and our lives and everything. And so I think, you know, from a medical perspective, it's really important that we open our that we open up our minds to go, not everything can or should be covered by clinical papers. Mm. Something you said um, when we were talking about this was, was what I thought was really powerful was around priorities, feed inequities. And I wonder if you could, could sort of talk to that point. 
Yeah, I think um, probably what I see um, happening in, I mean, we're no longer allowed to call them district health boards, are we? Because they're all centralised. But essentially, I've worked in district health boards. And um, and it, and really, the the structures within your departments, your clinics, your operating rooms are driven by, um, you know, your management structures and the funding that goes into those. And um, and if you don't have good representation in those structures, they will just serve the people that look like the people who are in management. And so that's what feeds the inequities is that you have these massive institutions and to be successful in those institutions, you have to be a certain way, talk a certain way, um, be a sort of cookie cutter, cutter model, model of what a consultant should look like or what a, what a you know, hospital manager should look like. And then that actually is the problem with the structures because that that then it doesn't matter how successful you are as a manager then um, and it can look like you're very successful you can be very very efficient and you can be very good with your you know your funding and you can spread it out really wide and you can prove statistically that you've helped more people but when you use a different lens you're only still helping the same types of people again and again and again because you're doing the the same things again and again and again so um i think that's the thing that's driving inequities is that we're not doing these big cultural shifts and shape shifting the model completely. We're just making small changes. And a lot of those changes seem very tokenistic when you're from a marginalized group, you know, things like rainbow tick, for example, or having um, uh, your values for your DHB written out in Tadeo Māori. That's not what those communities are asking for. They're not asking you to learn Tadeo Māori. They're not asking for the rainbow tick. They're asking to be treated to the gold standard level that you can achieve in your in your DHB. That's what they're asking for. And anything other than that is sort of patronising. So, um, I think I think that's that's. That's why the structures really frustrate me. And, it, and then to change anything is just, it's like wading through treacle because it's so many layers deep. Yeah. yeah. Something I was, you know, in terms of driving that sort of level of change, um, and this is, do, do, you, do you see a challenge at the moment? Because I see sometimes, um, you know, ideas that, that, that drive these sort of things, you know, there's sort of a, a blanket, um, oh, just call it woke, um, which is is a great way of um, of completely discounting it and saying, well, you know, it's just stupidity. Do you, do you see that as a challenge now, or, or, or virtue signalling? You know, I think the term virtue signalling, I believe, was probably created by someone who was trying to justify their own bigotry. But um, like, like, but but do you are you seeing um, because obviously there is there's there's a desire and that there is a movement for change, but there's also a resistance. Do you see that in medicine that you know people kind of discount the stuff that needs to happen to drive equalities of health outcomes? Going oh look that's just woke thinking. You know it's like you know get back. Do you see that? A hundred percent. I mean I actually. Um, my my whole career was geared up to being a child protection specialist, so a specialist in children that have been abused and neglected, and um, and I stopped that career trajectory because 
I was so appalled by my team, my colleagues, expressing exactly those sentiments, that people who um, were experiencing racism within our department were being called oversensitive, and that by calling out people who were racist, we were, we were then um, being called bullies for actually pointing it out, and, and they were sort of weaponizing our, you know, pain. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think I started off believing that it was just structural, that racism and bigotry and all of those things in medicine were just structural. Like you said, most people are good um, health professionals. They go in with good intentions. Um, and we just needed to change the structures. But actually... Um, I'm beginning to think that there are lots of people with quite suppressed views in high places that are actually quite overtly um, dismissive of changing the culture because it, it doesn't serve them well. Um, it exposes um, elements of their own research, their own practice, which are less than ideal. And you don't want to be told that 30 years into your training. It's much better to to denial and say I'm a really good person I'm not going to sit with the discomfort of this I'm just going to double down and say that what I'm doing is right and what you're saying is pathetic and wrong and it's just a fad but you know I just I just I'm praying for a bigger wave to wash over that <laughs> yeah I'm, I'd rather be part of that wave no I agree I agree uh, I think I wrote a blog about this recently, actually, about, you know, sometimes we have to be a hypocrite and, and a bit, you know, i.e., you know, go, well, I was wrong and, you know, I, I was wrong, but actually I can see now a better way. You know, you can be called a hypocrite, but actually that's just purely, you know, we actually have to be able to see when things haven't been working. Um, doubling down on them is not then the solution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh yeah, well, I mean, it's a it's a huge change. So, and, and coming back to you know, you you try to do some of the stuff in the public system. Um, how much easier have you found doing it, you know, in the private system when you you know master your own destiny? Oh, it's a hundred percent easier. You know, suddenly I have my own autonomy. Nobody's telling me what to do. I don't have a manager, or a clinical director, telling me that I can't do this. I can't say this. I must stick to this guideline. Um, you know, and I think the reflection of that has been Milk and Honey Pediatrics has only really been established and going for about oh, eight months now. And it's grown massive. And our team's gone from two to it looks like we're about to be 10. That's drawn in so many people from the system who work in the system saying, yes, I'm frustrated with this too. I want to try something different too, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we're now trying to scrabble at the moment to try and find a bigger clinic venue because suddenly we're, we're inundated with other health professionals that want to work with us also want to make sure that we're keeping standards high and seeing people quickly and seeing you know when we're saying like yes we will see if you're if you're particularly vulnerable or you're marginalized we will see you within weeks we won't make you wait we want to keep that going so actually we've we've been really sort of bowled over by how many people have come out and gone off oh, that at last somebody else has seen the same things as me and i i want to be part of that change so yeah fantastic Fantastic. Do you, do you ultimately, obviously you're going to build a, a, a business doing it yourself. Do you ultimately hope that it, it starts to impact the public health system as well? 
we'd be quite happy to take a pay cut in private. If if a if a hospital or district health board turned around and saw our clinic and said, yeah, we will we will fund that. We will, you know, we will redistribute funds to make sure that we contribute towards that. Any part of the government could look at it and say, yes, there is value in this. There is value in the first 1,000 days. Of course, in health, we should be focusing on the first 1,000 days. Oh, my goodness. Did we did we roadblock this for 10 years? We are so sorry. Here's the funding. And let's model this throughout all the regions in New Zealand. We would love that. That would be. All right, cool. Well, if anyone's listening who's in a position to do that, the 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 offer the offer is out there. I mean, I, I think it sounds like such a, a, a I mean, you and, and I guess from a funding perspective, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because funding looks at such a short term outcomes. You know, you're looking at the, the the lifetime outcomes of investing in those first three yeah, years. Absolutely. And when you look at countries that do that type of investment, so, I mean, we always talk about the Shangri-La of Scandinavia in paediatrics. When you look at um, countries like Sweden and Norway, and you look at what the government funds for children, they put all their funding, they put all their funding in the first 1,000 days. They hardly give you anything if you want to go to university or if you're in, um, if you're in high school. They just, there isn't much funding available. They just pour everything into the first 1,000 days. And when you look at their outcomes, they have higher literacy rates, lower mental health uh, problems in children, more people entering tertiary education. Um, and we know that there is a link between the higher educated you are, the better, the, the healthier you are, you know. And so we have models of countries who are similar sizes to us um, who do understand that if you put funding in those first few days of life, it pays off dividends generation generation after generation. So this is just a way, this milk and honey pediatrics is just a way of signaling and saying, hey, there is another way of doing this. Um, and we'll create a structure that can be modelled and reproduced and done in a similar way. Fantastic. Well, someone's got to go first in New Zealand, don't they? Well, we're, we're going to try. <laughs> well, you're already doing it. Um, Carmen, if you could go back in time and speak to your 18-year-old self, you know, just getting into, into uh, med school, what would you say are the three most important things that you would advise her to, you know, to have a great life or... You know, yeah, have a great life. You know, not that this is helpful for the podcast. I'd be so tempted to go back and just say, don't do all those bad haircuts and have all those bad boyfriends. But that is not the answer you're looking for. I know, <laughs> I know that's not the answer you're looking for. Um, I, I, eighteen-year-old Carmen, if I could go back and talk to her, I would say things like, um, number one, uh, both in medicine and in life, um. Things don't always go according to plan and that's okay and let it go if it doesn't go according to plan um, you can't control everything and sometimes the hardest thing in medicine and in life is to do nothing and just let time pass uh, probably um, one of the other things I would personally be saying to myself is um, you know don't do things to make yourself happy and stick to your own values don't don't do things to please other people and seek approval from other people um and probably on a similar theme and i i actually do sneakily say this now to junior doctors a lot because i truly believe this and i i don't think we're reminded of this enough and i would definitely be saying this to 18 year old carmen um 
remember the reason you entered medicine was to serve patients and families. And it isn't to please or impress your colleagues or management and stay true to that um, and stay strong on that path because that is a bumpy road. But ultimately, that's the road where you have some integrity um, to the profession. And that's probably what I would say. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, one of the things I sort of came across, you know, as a junior doctor is if just before you see every patient, just ask, ask yourself, how can I serve this person? Simple as that. How can I serve this person? Because it gets you in that state of everything back to why you, why we're here. Yeah. And it brings you back to that point of connection because without connection, you cannot heal or treat anyone. It doesn't matter if you've got all the best medicines in the world behind you. There is something about somebody's physiology that needs with their treatment that's partly why we have poor outcomes in people who are marginalized because we're not connecting seeing them as other and we know this we know this in pediatrics because when we look at teenagers and how they recover from cancer we know that if they're not connecting with their peers their healing is less good even with the same treatment as younger children so there's just something about that and that's the art of medicine as well understanding yeah there is, there's even papers around that, you know, the, the impact of compassion medicine and, you know, on, on the needs for, for analgesics post-surgery. And, you know, there, there is science that backs up the what seems pretty obvious. I know you've got, you've got a long way to go, but um, how, how would you like to be remembered? Oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, despite my really ardent feminist um, leanings I think I probably mostly want to just be remembered as um, in life as a warm nurturing loving mother to my two sons and maybe world's best stepmother and aunt too but um, in in medicine um, uh, I guess I would just like to be an inspiration for those who don't see themselves reflected well in medicine um, that for, for somebody who comes from an unconventional background, I just want to be a little light for them to say, you can, you can do it. And we need people like you. We need people like you to be the force for change because, you know, I'm part of the old guard really. Um, and I just, I re really want to be there just to help raise up those, those people that could be the, the new innovators um, because they have a different perspective. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, you, you're clearly living that now. So um, I've got no, no doubt about that. Look, um, it's been really good talking with you. I think, you know, some of those key ideas um, that come from a doctor's perspective, obviously you, you talk about the first thousand days, but in a more generalist way, I think that idea that priorities feed inequities, I think is something that we as doctors all need to think about particularly doctors who are in positions where they're managing budgets and managing departments. Like we've just got to really, you know, question the unquestioned conviction um, when it comes to some of those things and actually, you know, start with a bank blank slate um, and then, you know, do what you can. But, but, you know, I think it's a lesson a lot of us have come across is there's sometimes there's only so far you can go in the public system. Sometimes you just have to step out and pioneer a new way and, and, you know, the public system will come along. Yeah. yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, absolutely. Well, look, thank you so much. It's been great to connect, great to have this conversation. I hope any doctors who are listening have got a lot of value from it. I'm sure they have. And 
you know, and, and I think you know, you be, being that uh, light for for you know the, the fact, the fact, not not the opinion, the fact that medicine needs all those voices for if we want to actually, you know, just come back to our core thing, which is you know provide the best medicine to everyone. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I've really enjoyed this chat. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Me too. We could have gone on, but uh, we, 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 you know, we're already over the, the half hour we aimed at. So uh, thank you very much.